Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform station of the nation from Jersey City, great state of New Jersey. I'm happy to be here and very happy that you have chosen to join me, whether you're listening live or sometime in the future on our archive or podcast version. It's great to have you here. Thanks. This evening, we're going to be talking about, as I put it in the show title, the lurking dangers of tech, which, uh, of which there are many. And uh, I should just say a, a word about the past week. I mean, there are many directions I could have taken this show in. This is the November 14, 2022 show, and the last week in tech has been, wow. I mean, the, the wheels are really coming off the bus uh, for many large technology companies. Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg just laid off 11,000 people. And uh, that's certainly no laughing matter for the people who lost their jobs. But it just, it shows, and I think from, from about a year ago, uh, someone could correct me on the comment board. This is from memory. But I think the, the peak of Facebook's stock price was about a year ago. And from that peak until today, I think the the stock has lost um, around 70% of its value, which is tr- just striking. I mean, as a comparison to where we were talking about the tech industry a year ago to today. Um, and it looks like there are going to be other layoffs, and there are other layoffs going on in other big tech companies. So that's the 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 environment right now is 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 very different from the heyday of just a few months ago. The other thing happening, of course, is the drama. Always the drama with Elon Musk. Always drama wherever he goes. And now it's at Twitter, where <coughs> he is now uh, the owner of Twitter. And uh, I, I you, you you may have seen this, or if you're listening in the future, you may have heard of this in the past. I don't need to get into all the details, but. Um, basically, it, it's just been one miscue after another, and uh, the the most notable one over the last few days was these these blue check marks, the the uh, the big to do around the check marks. It used to be on Twitter that you and I never had one of these, but fancy people, you know, celebrities and and other well known users would go through a. a, a process, which I think was somewhat rigorous, to become verified, to show Twitter that they were who they said they were. In, in other words, if you're a celebrity or you're on the celebrity's PR team, the, the person writing the celebrity's Twitter posts, you would verify that you're from that celebrity's team and not some prankster who's just impersonating the celebrity for fun. And then at the end of the verifi- verification process, they would give a blue check mark to that account. Well, Elon Musk came in and he said, you know what the problem is with these, this is not a, this is just me interpreting Musk for you, okay, not, not an exact quote, but he essentially said, you know what the problem is with these blue check marks is that we're not making any money off of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to charge $8 per verified check mark. Any, any account who pays us $8 will be able to buy a blue check mark, verifying them as who they say they are. <laughs> And I mean, 
I guess if you're the world's richest man, at least on paper, you can say things like that, and you must. It, he must be surrounded by a cloud of of yes men. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, Elon, you're such an innovator. Oh, I just love how you come up with these ideas, even though that is transparently the stupidest thing anyone's ever heard of at Twitter. And Twitter, <laughs> there have been a lot of stupid things uh, in, inside that company, and that's got to be the stupidest. So, because what, what, what happened five seconds after they made that policy change is that everyone's, everyone around the world said, well, I've, I've got a great joke and crack for eight bucks. And so they, <laughs> I mean, someone, not someone, multiple people thought it'd be really funny to pay $8 and have a blue checkmark verified account as the Pope. And so you have all these fake Pope accounts um, posting on Twitter very unPope-like <laughs> um, <clears throat> comments. But more, more entertaining than that were the people who came up with fake company accounts. And the, probably the best known one as of a few days ago was what happened with Eli Lilly, which is the pharmaceutical giant. Um, someone created a, an Eli Lilly PR account that looked uh, almost indistinguishable from the actual Eli Lilly verified blue checkmark account. And anyway, the, the fake one that looked so real uh, posted on Twitter, uh, we're here at Eli Lilly, we are proud to announce that insulin is now free. And <laughs> apparently, uh, the, the PR team within Eli Lilly, the real company, freaked out. What is happening? And, um, and that, that post was being shared all over Twitter and so on because it looked like the, the real thing. And anyway, one thing led to another, and the Eli Lilly stock price on that day dropped, I don't know how many points. I, I'm not that interested in market capitalization changes. I'm, I'm just bringing this up to show you that um, Elon Musk has made a bunch of dumb decisions, including the blue check marks, which I think he has somewhat, at least temporarily, uh, reversed himself on. I can't keep it straight. And in fact, I'm not all that interested. I mean, I, I find it entertaining in a schadenfreude sort of way, but there are other, uh, there are other stories that are not getting the moment-to-moment -moment attention that all of the layoffs and Musk's uh, various escapades always get every day. There are other let me just say it. There are other dangers that are uh, presented to us by technology that are underreported. Well, I don't mean nobody's talking about them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not making up um, things, conspiracies uh, just off the top of my head. I, I have sources for these that I've posted. I'm just saying that as these are reported by journalists who are trying to bring up <clears throat> some legitimate warnings for us, these stories naturally do not spread because they're not as, I don't know, not as large scale or they don't fit into the overarching narrative of the moment or something. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to be doing this evening. We're going to be talking about the lurking dangers of tech in a way that is not, does not fit into the current set of well-reported stories about Musk and layoffs and stock price drops and that sort of thing. So, um, although if you, I will say, if you want to see a couple of little jokes about Twitter, go to the playlist at wfmu.org, click playlists and comments, and you can see them on the playlist. There's a couple of memes that I have uh, already posted for your enjoyment listeners that have to do with the Twitter mess. And that's just to acknowledge we're not going to be saying a whole lot about Twitter for the rest of the show. 
Um, <coughs> if you're listening in the future, you can go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. Find the November 14, 2022 show, and it's those uh, Twitter memes are in the playlist there. So um, I have, I, I, I didn't count these. There are about a dozen stories. I already know that I'm not going to have time to get to all these, but I wanted to put them all up um, because maybe I'll jump around a little bit. And if I don't get to them, you can read them on the playlist yourself. They all have sources. You can read the original source material and, um, you know, come to your, your own conclusions about whether these are serious threats. But I, I think... I think that the, um, well, you'll see, these, these are interesting stories that point to a couple of underlying threats that um, come out in the way that we relate to our technology, and that's really, that's really the message uh, by the end of the show I hope I'll be able to get to. And I have a couple of audio bits, too, if, um, if, if the mood strikes me, I have a couple of audio bits. But let's, let's go with the first show, uh, sorry, the first story that's listed on uh, the show playlist, which is Cleveland Man Cleveland Man with a Nature app. This is from cleveland.com from October 10. And here's, here's what the story says. A nature identification app on his phone. Now, let me just back up here for it. Have you used any of these nature identification apps? Uh, there's a bunch on the smartphone. I don't actually have one on my smartphone, but I've talked to friends who use them and, and really are excited by them. The idea is that on your smartphone, either your, your Apple surveillance device or your Google Android surveillance device, you can um, run one of these apps and you can identify things in nature like trees and plants and flowers and, and things like that. And uh, if you, for instance, if you want to identify a tree, you would just turn on that app, run the app, the app would then use the camera to take a photo of a leaf that you f- see on the ground, let's say, or maybe it's still on the tree. And the app would say, uh, th- th- that's, a, um, that's a red oak or whatever it is. And you go, oh, great. Now I know what it is without having to log around a guidebook. Kind of, kind of an inter- interesting concept, except, except there is this false precision that, that often shows up when we use technology without thinking fully about how the, how the technology was designed, how the information is structured, and to what extent we really should trust it. And that's what happened in this case. There was a guy in Cleveland who was out, I think he was out in his uh, backyard, yes. And, um, and oh, let me just read this to you. So the, the, it has to do with a nature identification app on his phone. This is a 54-year-old beekeeper, an amateur naturalist, from the Cleveland area, he had grown and picked mushrooms in the past and regularly enjoyed identifying plants. So he did what he thought was the responsible thing. <coughs> when he saw mushrooms growing in his backyard, he used the plant identification app on his phone to determine the species of mushroom. When the app matched his photos of the backyard mushrooms with an edible species, this guy, uh, his name was Hickman. Hickman collected them, meaning collected the mushrooms, took them home, and sautéed them with onions, garlic, and butter. Okay, so let's stop here for a second. So you see some mushrooms. Maybe they weren't in the backyard. Maybe they were in the forest behind his house. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, somewhere near his house, he was able to uh, see some mushrooms, 
And based on this plant identification app on his, on his handheld surveillance device, it said, ah, it's this. It is this kind of mushroom, which is edible. And he goes, fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to saute it up for dinner. So he, uh, he ate them, and, and apparently the, 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 the article also says that he offered them to his wife. His wife was skeptical and did not want to eat some random mushrooms out of the forest. And he said, no, 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 it's okay, because look, the smartphone app said it was okay. Friends, you already see where this is going. Let me just finish the story, though. So he ate the mushrooms on top of the tortellini his wife had made for dinner. And after dinner, he says, see, I'm fine. No problem. It was delicious. Until the middle of the night. The middle of that night, roughly eight hours later, Hickman became violently ill with crippling stomach pain and continuous vomiting and diarrhea. So that immediately resulted in an emergency room visit. They quickly diagnosed him with, you guessed it, mushroom poisoning. He had eaten one of the uh, more poisonous species of mushrooms in Ohio, and he lived. He lived. Thankfully, he did not die, but he easily could have died, and he was later quoted as saying, I think I would, if, I think if I wouldn't have had my phone, I would not have picked those mushrooms. I know I wouldn't have. There's no question in my mind, he said. So he's, <laughs> he's blaming the phone, and I don't blame him for blaming the phone. I mean, obviously, he, he, he had a judgment error, but the Nature smartphone app says that's edible, and that's all the little screen has room for. It just says, as far as we know, it's this edible species. Um, the lurking danger there is when you use an app, that has that false precision that says the following thing is edible or the following thing is safe or the following thing is, you know, the right thing to do without you uh, offering up your own critical judgment. As I've said many times before, when we abdicate our role as critical thinkers, we can get ourselves in trouble or in the case of Hickman in Cleveland, uh, we can almost die because we unthinkingly follow the instruction of the surveillance device in our hands. Does it go further than that? Let's go to the next story. This is um, <coughs> from a, a doctor who wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal about personal heart monitors. Have you seen these things, the, the wrist-worn, what used to be a, a, on an ankle bracelet, the kind of surveillance gear that... Um, that uh, parolees would have to wear on their ankles has now moved to the wrist and companies like Apple and Google are somehow convincing people to pay $300, $400 to wear an ankle bracelet on their wrist uh, and it's called the Apple Watch or I don't, I don't even know all the different product names but they're uh, tracking devices that people wear on the wrist for some reason. Chris Gilliard, a friend of the show, calls it luxury surveillance. This is where people aspire to pay hundreds of dollars, even thousands of dollars, to wear the surveillance gear that uh, used to be uh, only for prisoners and parolees. Well, now these, these wrist-worn surveillance devices will have, or they claim to have, heart monitors. And you understand the, these so-called smartwatches, they are there, the, the purpose of the smartwatch is to collect your data and feed it to the company, which then packages it up and sells access to that 
personal private data to third parties. Okay, that's the business model of surveillance capitalism. And, and for those of you who are immediately thinking, well, good thing I wear an Apple device because Apple is all about privacy. <laughs> oh my goodness. I could do a whole show on that, but I would just, uh, spoiler, I, please, please relieve yourselves of any fantasies that Apple has anything to do with privacy. I will grant, reluctantly, that Apple is not quite as intensely exploitative as Google. Not quite. I mean, they are trying. They, they, I should say they haven't caught up to Google yet, although they, were, they are trying. And I'm going to get to Apple with at least one other story later in the show. But let, just for now, suffice to say, I don't care if you're wearing an Apple uh, ankle bracelet or a Google ankle bracelet on your wrist, you're, it's the same business model. They're, they're not there to provide you with health. They're there for you to provide them with your data. I hope you understand that, that relationship. So anyway, in order to try to convince people that giving up their personal private data to these exploitive companies is a good thing, they try to layer on these little features much like that smartphone app where it says, oh, look, it's an edible mushroom, where, where the, app has, uh, uh, the app has very little idea wh whether it's edible or not. But it just says it. Yeah, it's edible. Go for it. Um, similarly, these, these uh, so-called smartwatches have these heart monitors where they promise, again, erroneously, <coughs> and I'm not even sure if it's in good faith, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that the programmers think they're acting in good faith that they promise that they are going to read your heartbeat and tell you and alert you if you have a heart problem. Like, oh, you have atrial fibrillation, also known as AFib. You've got to get yourself to the doctor. Or don't worry, we've been watching your heartbeat for, for two weeks now, and you're totally normal. See, you can trust us, your buddies at Apple or Google, and you don't have to go to those know-nothings doctors who... who uh, who, who only take your copay and just go on about stuff. Just, just, just uh, sidle up to your buddy, the, the, the Apple Watch or, the, or the, the Google Watch, and we'll tell you what's happening with your own body. Just trust us first, and we'll tell you if you need to go to the doctor. That's basically the relationship. Well, there had been a previous story about some of the pros and cons of these smartwatches in the Wall Street Journal, and this uh, doctor... Uh, wrote, I didn't get his, his uh, location, but uh, Robert Saldivar, MD, from October 10. Here's what he writes. In my suburban practice, I often see someone who has received a device alert. Mean, and I'll step back here. Meaning, someone comes in having gotten an alert from their wrist surveillance device saying, ooh, Apple says I have a heart problem, or Google says I have AFib. Please, doctor, Google ordered me to come talk to you, so I'm, I'm here. So please tell me what I should do now. In my practice, I often see someone who's received a device alert. Rarely will we find a serious condition. Instead, more, most often, the frequent alerts from the device have led to a high level of stress, which can exacerbate an underlying anxiety condition. So this doctor is saying... It, th there's a couple of problems. One is that the alerts will go off. You have a, you have a heart problem. You have AFib. You have this. You got to go to the doctor. The person freaks out. I've got to get, I've got to get to the heart doctor right away. The, my, my watch is, is ordering me and saying I have all sorts of, of, of terrible conditions. And so the doctor then puts on an actual heart monitor, does an actual 
examination and uses actual medical expertise to look at the patient. So finally, the patient is getting actual medical care, not some sort of fakey stuff from some $2 trillion surveillance company that just wants to convince you to keep using their luxury surveillance device on your wrist. And the doctor says, actually, you don't have a heart problem, except you're freaking out so much because of your stupid watch, you may develop a heart problem. It's, it's exacerbating your anxiety. And so far from alerting you and resolving and, and, and steering you away from a heart problem, the wrist surveillance device itself is causing a heart problem, <laughs> is what the doctor is saying. And then he says there's a further problem. <coughs> Excuse me. He says none of these devices can actually detect the electrical indicators of a heart attack. If users feel off and the device gives no alert or it reads normal, then they may feel falsely reassured and then not seek medical attention. So this is even the worse danger than the first one uh, about, about the uh, so-called smartwatch. Someone, let's say someone feels just a little bit off that maybe their heart doesn't feel quite right. And they go, well, I know my body is telling me that I don't feel super healthy, but you know who the authority is in my life, who I go to with all my questions? It's, it's my buddy, Apple. It's my buddy, Google. So let me look down at my surveillance device on my wrist and, and see what Apple or Google tells me I should do. And they bring up the, the heart monitor, the thing that claims to be a heart monitor, that little mode on their, on their surveillance device, and it says, heart is perfectly normal. No need to panic. No need to see a doctor. And the person says, well, I guess I'm fine. And then next thing you know, the heart attack hits. So when there's nothing, then the device is telling them, it's, the sky is falling, everything is bad, and it sends them into a tizzy and actually may create a problem. When there is actually a problem, it tends to tell them nothing's, nothing's wrong at all, don't worry, and it leaves them vulnerable because they didn't seek out the medical help that actually could have given the medical care and helped them. That, friends, is a lurking danger, and I hope you see the connection between that and the mushroom story where we are putting too much trust in this software that is, at best, flimsy in, in the living out of its claims. Uh, at worst, it can be actively harmful. And when we put too much trust in, in that software, we put ourselves at risk. And we're missing the larger point about what these devices are actually built for. They're built for the enrichment of the companies. They're not built for you. They are not built for you. They're built for the enrichment of the companies. Now, this is not to say that there's no reason ever to use one of these things. <coughs> as much as I say to metaphorically throw them all into the Hudson River, which I still say, uh, here I have my own Apple surveillance device here. Because there are certain communication features that, based on uh, relationships that I've got outside of the radio show, I have to use a device like that in order to stay in touch with people. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not the ideal situation. Nobody's pure. <coughs> but here's a rule of thumb that I try to follow myself. I don't know if this is helpful for you, but I always try to think, what is the minimal level of technology that I can use to accomplish the task that I'm trying to do? What is the minimal level?
So like if I want to identify a tree that's uh, just outside my house, um, rather than going and downloading a smartphone app that, that gives up who knows what kind of data and then maybe may give me a false reading, especially if I'm reading up on uh, uh, scanning uh, mushrooms, I might try to find some other lower tech way of identifying that tree. Or, or especially if it's, it's a, I mean, maybe identifying a tree is a low stakes uh, matter, but if it's a higher stakes matter where things really, you have to be accurate, I would first try to think what is the lowest tech and the highest expertise that I can use to maybe identify these mushrooms or uh, get, a, get a vital organ checked out rather than going to a stupid smartwatch. Okay, enough about that. That is the mushroom story and the heart story. Okay, let's go on to Amazon Ring because here is another story about alerts being, being thrown up by a device that caused, in this case, almost caused a, a horrible tragedy. You may have seen this. This was reported pretty widely. This is from, uh, from last month, from October 2022. And there was a letter in uh, an opinion piece, I should say, on NBCNews.com by Evan Greer and Anna uh, uh, Bone Steel from Fight for the Future, which is a an advocacy organization that's this very aligned with the sorts of things that I say on this show. So it's definitely from a particular point of view. Uh, the the letter headline is America's Ring Doorbell Camera Obsession highlights the scourge of mass surveillance. So and you can hear the the tenor of <laughs> of my perspective just in that headline. But here's the story. Uh, and this is reading again from Evan and Anna's piece on NBCNews.com. In October, a man walked down his Florida street to return a neighbor's package that had been accidentally delivered to his address. <coughs> okay, so far, so good. Somewhere in Florida, a package gets misdelivered. Neighbor tries to be a good neighbor and walk the package down to the correct address and, I guess, leave it on the doorstep. But you're going to hear... There on that street, there were Amazon rings installed like they are all across this country. The Amazon ring is a video surveillance device that is installed on the door or, or, or just by the door of, uh, of homes. And it looks out on not just onto the porch, but onto the street. So it has a view onto the street and it feeds that data. First, it feeds the data to Amazon and it feeds the data increasingly to local law enforcement. Now, I understand that there are some recent claims by Amazon that some of the um, more recent releases of Amazon Ring surveillance devices are end-to-end -end encrypted, meaning Amazon claims that they cannot read that footage. And I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't seen any kind of audit of the code because it's not open source. So you have to decide if you trust Amazon <laughs> to... Uh, to tell the truth for that rather uh, serious claim. Uh, but beyond that, whether they're end-to-end -end encrypted right now or not, the, it's very clear that Amazon wants to enlist the help and the partnership of local law enforcement all across the country. And so whether a few cameras are encrypted now, you know that the long-term goal here is to share surveillance data with the police in a non-encrypted fashion. And to share it with any, any hackers who might be able to get into those feeds at some point. So anyway, 
<coughs> so so many streets in America right now are turning into panopticons because of these devices. So let's go back to that man in Florida. He walks down his Florida street to return the neighbor's package. Unbeknownst to this good Samaritan, he was being watched by an Amazon Ring doorbell camera on the front porch, as reported by the Washington Post. Police told the Post that the Ring device sent an alert to the homeowner and his teenage son. <coughs> Let me stop here. Imagine the scene. The Good Samaritan is bringing the package to the correct address. At the correct address, there's an Amazon Ring surveillance device watching someone come close to the door, and it gives an alert. Remember the alerts, just like that heart monitor. Look out, look out, somebody's on the front porch. The Ring device sent an alert to the homeowner and his teenage son, who, assuming there was an intruder, grabbed 45 caliber handguns and opened fire on a woman, not the guy returning the package, but on a woman who was sitting nearby in her car. <laughs> and I, you know, you can laugh about this because thankfully nobody was hurt. I mean, I think there were bullet holes all over the poor woman's car. She must have been, I mean, how terrified that must have been. But I, I believe that none of the bullets struck her. So no one was injured, at least physically. But this, this, uh, this incident, the reason why Evan Greer and his colleague uh, Anna Bonesteel from Fight for the Future, want, I think, wanted to write this letter is to alert us that as we turn our streets into a panopticon run by Amazon and feeding into local law enforcement, this flim, again, the flimsy software design is, is tuned to uh, the, the benefit of the company. It's not tuned to the benefit of the community because look how it acted. Someone approaches a porch, it's throwing alerts, look out, look out. These people, the, the father and son both <laughs> grab handguns and I guess by, by the time they made it to the door, the, guy, the good Samaritan had already dropped the package and left. They open the door. They're looking for who the intruder might be. They see someone sitting in their car. And, you know, what do you do then? Well, of course, you open fire on the car, on the person sitting in their car. And one might say, well, that wasn't Amazon's fault. It's people who were on a hair trigger and so on. Yeah, well, yeah, but can, can you think about a different way to organize a community. Because the way we're organizing communities right now is to say, everyone stay in your homes, hide behind your screens, and look to big tech to tell you what's happening. Don't, don't go and look for yourself. Wait until you get an alert. Don't learn about mushroom identification from books or other experts. Wait until the app tells you to eat them. Don't go to the doctor when you're feeling off. Wait until the smartwatch, the surveillance device, tells you to go to the doctor. Don't go and learn more about your community and knit together a the civil social fabric on your street. No, stay at home and wait for the Amazon app to tell you when you should grab your gun. That's how we're going to run this society from now on. It's run on paranoia and fear. And, and when people are paranoid and fearful of their neighbors, then that's a perfect environment for big tech companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google to step in and say, well, I guess the social fabric is ripped beyond repair. 
only we, only we can knit it back together again. So everyone look at your screens, keep looking at your phones, keep using the highest tech possible device at the highest possible purchase price, which we are gonna upgrade here within six months, and, um, and make sure you stay glued to those devices and we will tell you how to run your health, how to run your family, how to run your community. We will tell you, we are the authorities now. Don't listen to anybody else, we're in charge. And this is what you get. You get death and destruction when that happens because we're trusting the wrong people. There's a great story in the Washington Post that <coughs> really broke this story from October 19. They got, a ring, they got a ring doorbell alert, then opened fire on a bystander, police say. And, uh, and then from Vice, uh, Vice.com had a good one and had the best headline of all. Ring cameras are going to get more people killed. Ironic, don't you think that Amazon Ring is sold as a security device? It's going to be cutting down on crime. I agree with Vice. Ring cameras are going to get more people killed. What's the lowest tech way that we could build a community on a suburban street? Is it for all of us to sit behind our screens and be afraid of every, everyone else and wait until the alerts come in? Or could there be, could we imagine some other way to connect with our neighbors other than through a screen? Is it possible we could have a relationship with our neighbors, with people in our community, unmediated by a trillion dollar company? I don't know. Just a thought. Let's move on. Let's go to the next story. This one is from Technology Review, September 23rd. The, uh, the headline is, The YouTube Baker fighting back against deadly craft hacks. And I should just say at the outset, I can't stand the misuse of the word hacks. I've never liked it. Uh, I should do a show at some point on the, mo <coughs> the, model, the uh, model Railroad Club up at MIT that really came up with the idea of hacks that were uh, creative and non-destructive pranks that MIT later became so well known for. Hacks, uh, the word then got commandeered and really perverted by Mark Zuckerberg when he claimed that every, everything that was happening at, at Facebook was a hack. We're hackers. We're at one hacker way. And then everything became life hacks uh, and, and, and now craft hacks. It's really gross. I don't like the use. But anyway, that's, that's the word that people have adopted. So there's a baker on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I don't love that... Um, People are continuing to post videos on YouTube because uh, that is mainly serves to enrich Google. But anyway, there's uh, a woman who, uh, Anne Reardon in Australia, who uh, posts these videos on how to bake. Very innocuous. She's trying to be helpful. That's all, that's all fine. But <clears throat> she found that there was a channel, and there still is a channel on YouTube called Five Minute Crafts. Five Minute Crafts, which Tech Review says is currently the 13th most subscribed channel on YouTube. Every week, the channel gains around 30 million more views. So this is an incredibly popular channel <clears throat> on YouTube. People can subscribe to different accounts, and then they'll, they'll get notified somehow when, when a new video goes up. And true to its name, this channel, Five Minute Crafts, posts little cutesy little crafting ideas in 
<laughs> not always five minutes, but, you know, f fairly short videos, several minutes. And um, what, what this woman, <laughs> Ann Reardon, found when she started diving into this, this extremely popular crafts channel, because she's a baker. She makes, uh, I guess she makes baked goods that you actually can make at home, and she has far fewer viewers than that. And she notices that this channel, Five Minute Crafts, is, is tearing it up. And she goes in and looks at some of the videos, and she realizes many of them are not good at all. Uh, the channel features craft hacks that are often potentially lethal, like the following. Poaching eggs in a microwave. Can you imagine, friends, putting up a YouTube video that encourages people and kids and kids to put an egg in the microwave and turn the microwave on. If, if you've used a microwave for, I don't know, longer than, uh, I don't know, a couple of days, you know you never, ever, ever put an egg inside a microwave. But Five Minute Crafts, the 13th most popular channel on YouTube, is perfectly happy to gain the views by claiming, erroneously, that you can poach eggs in a microwave. There's another one apparently that has since been taken down after this, uh, after Reardon complained, but it was how to bleach strawberries. And when I say bleach, I mean, because so strawberries are red, right? But there's a craft hack that will, will turn the strawberries from red to white, and now you can be eating white strawberries. Isn't that fun? But here's the trick. The way that Five Minute Crafts says, or said in this previous video that has now been taken down, to bleach the strawberries is literally to use bleach. So you're soaking strawberries in bleach. So you're, you're making, let me get this straight. You're making videos that are cutesy little craft videos that, that kids are gonna watch on YouTube, often unsupervised by their parents, because some parents will, for various reasons, will park their, their kids in front of YouTube or wherever. The kids can be watching YouTube at school. Parents aren't even around. And they're watching these little videos that say, hey, here's a fun hack. Soak your strawberries in bleach. See what happens. That can kill someone. Now, you might say, well, that's terrible. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a red alert. I mean, has, is YouTube aware of this? <laughs> Are you kidding? Is YouTube aware of this? Yes, they're aware of all the money that they're making from five-minute crafts. They're well aware of that. And so they are loath to take anything down. The only time YouTube takes something down is if someone complains loudly enough that makes a PR scandal that actually might cause Google to lose a little bit of money. That's when they act. But if you're coming at them and saying, as Ann Reardon did, hey, you, you are allowing this channel to post videos that can harm or even kill people, you've got you to take this stuff down. Well, we'll look into it. We'll look into it. Meanwhile... As the Technology Review article says, this channel, 5-Minute Crafts, one analysis estimated the channel could generate up to $6.8 million annually for the creators. And so whoever's behind these, these little videos is doing just fine for themselves. And by the way, Google makes a multiple of that. Whatever YouTube influencers or whatever the dumb term is, whatever they make from their little YouTube videos, Google makes several times more than that because people are really, they're, they're being exploited like, like on all the services, Spotify, Amazon Music, 
uh, all of all all of these the 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 talent the creators are really being exploited by the big tech companies. So you can imagine Google is looking at this 13th uh, most profitable channel that they have, and you have some people complaining that it there are videos that might kill some kids. Did you do you understand how much money we make from this? Go away. We're YouTube. We're owned by Google. You you understand how evil we are, right? Get out of my face. I'm, I, I need to go back to counting my money. And meanwhile, Tech Review points out this Craft Hacks channel, in addition to the eggs, the strawberries, <coughs> Google did take that one down. Uh, they're still, as far, I know, as far as I know, still up and active on that, on that channel, a tutorial on spinning molten sugar into cotton candy with an electric drill. Again, let me say that again. A tutorial on spinning molten sugar into cotton candy with an electric drill, a tutorial on making a glue gun out of a sliced soda can and a lighter, and a video in which a mysterious hand lights antibacterial gel on fire before swiping fingers through it. This, they, they really sound like a class act, right? And here I'm talking both about the channel itself and Google YouTube, which leaves these videos up in a bid to m continue making profit, maximal profit at any cost to human health and life. It's, it's really disgusting and outrageous, but you know, it smells like Google. What are you gonna do? Another thing in that, um, in that story, by the way, in Technology Review, that is not, as far as I know, not associated with that particular channel, not on 5-Minute Crafts, but on other accounts just throughout YouTube. But YouTube very, very well knows about this. This is an absolutely deadly uh, process that, I, that I'm going to tell you about. I'm not even going to call it a craft hack because it's not a craft hack. This is, this is a very, very easy way for someone to die. And uh, people have died. It's something called fractal wood burning. Fractal wood burning. Now, if you know what a fractal is, it's these shapes that, that kind of like um, if you've seen an image of a lightning strike and it divides up into uh, sub bolts and the sub bolts divide into more sub bolts. It looks like that. Almost looks like a root, a root structure of uh, plant roots underground. Well, if you can put an uh, electric <coughs> current uh, of, of sufficient uh, voltage into a block of wood, it will burn that block of wood in the shape of that lightning strike, what they call fractal wood burning. And some people, for some reason, think it looks cool and want to actually make it. And so there is some way to, and I'm not going to get into the details because I I don't even want people to investigate this or look into it because this is extremely stupid and dangerous to even try this. But it has to do with using some, some household objects, deconstructing them, and using the power source to send the electricity into a block of wood. And people have, have been grievously injured and people have died doing this because of the instructions that they watched on YouTube, on Google YouTube. And I checked today and there are still hundreds of videos about fractal wood burning still on Google YouTube. Now I know Google will say, 
who has the time to go through and take down all those videos? Who can possibly? Meanwhile, I want you to do it. I don't actually want you. I'm being ironic here. Go and do a copyright violation by posting uh, some off-kilter video about Mickey Mouse on YouTube and see how long it takes before that gets taken down and your account is deactivated. Because that's, that's you're stepping on the toes of valuable corporate partner Disney. But with fractal wood burning, uh, I can do a search, just, just uh, a normal consumer search, and you can see the videos on fractal wood burning. Google will not take those down. They'll claim it's too difficult. Even though there is a medical paper talking about the injuries that burn specialists have had to deal with when people come in to, <coughs> to the office having burned themselves and almost died doing fractal wood burning. There's a, there's a uh, journal of burn care and research. And the, the uh, issue from March, April 2021. And there is a, there's a paper, there's an academic paper in this medical journal. And I have to read the story title, which I think is really cheesy given how serious this is. But the title of the paper is Shocked Through the Heart and YouTube is to Blame. I'm, I'm not even going to go there. Um, Shock through the heart and YouTube is to blame the rising incidence of accidental transcardiac electrocution from do-it-yourself fractal wood art. And this, and this is a medical paper, and it starts by talking about YouTube, which is, which is to blame. It says, this is from the paper. YouTube users account for more than 45% of the world's entire population including more than 73% of American adults. Many are turning to DIY online videos to inspire new ways of passing the time. And so we see DIY-related injuries. <coughs> the growing popularity of fractal wood burning is increasing the incidence of high-voltage electrocutions occurring at home. And, uh, and it talks about how YouTube is is just very happy to present these these videos uh, and they have and they're the videos they say are frequently accompanied by links and pop-up advertisements selling the electrical equipment necessary to build a high voltage transformer and produce a finished work of art uh, so uh, class act once again class act google youtube both not taking down these lethal instructional videos but also making just a little bit more profit off of them by selling the equipment to turn, uh, to turn your home into a high-voltage laboratory where you can, with one small, slight misstep, can electrocute yourself instantly. Uh, I don't know what else to say about this. But they, they, there are apparently dozens of people have died from fractal wood burning already. So this is uh, already documented in the news. It's documented in an academic paper that Google, YouTube's lack of a moderation strategy is killing people. But Google would say, I'm sure, uh, if they were being honest, gosh darn it, it makes us so much money. What do you expect us to turn off the money spigot anytime somebody dies because of our lack of moderation? That's no way to run a growth at any cost business, is it? Just remember who Google is. It smells like Google. 
Uh, we're almost out of time. Palmer Lucky, the Oculus inventor who uh, made the, the, the virtual reality rig and sold it to Mark Zuckerberg. Kind of a weird guy. Yes, he is kind of a weird guy. Vice, November 2nd. Sorry, November 7. Palmer Lucky made a VR headset that kills the user if they die in the game. Uh, apparently, this is not a joke. Palmer Lucky has made a prototype of a VR headset with explosive charges uh, that, that, are, that are arranged around the user's uh, skull, and uh, he has programmed it so that when the game over indicator flashes up on screen, the uh, charges go off and the, uh, the player is immediately killed. And uh, Lucky wrote very, very proudly and excitedly about this new device, saying that it's an incredible device that perfectly recreates reality using a direct neural interface that is also capable of killing the user. He says, we, we are halfway to making this uh, a reality. So far, I have only figured out the half that kills you. The perfect VR half of the equation is still many years out. Well, I'm glad Palmer Lucky, who made his billions selling some sort of VR rig to Mark Zuckerberg, has found his true calling, which apparently is not creating a virtual reality device. It's uh, creating a device that kills the user. I mean, the, 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 the distance from Facebook to Google, from an explosive VR device to, uh, to YouTube videos that teach people how to accidentally electrocute themselves is, is not, very, not very far. In, in the same way that there's not much geographic distance between those two companies' headquarters. And there is basically zero difference in the business models of Facebook and Google. Surveillance capitalism means growth at any cost. M much like what Apple is growing into here. They're going to provide devices. They're going to provide little video streams, cutesy things. It doesn't matter. Anything to gain and maintain your attention so that you become addicted to the screens, to the feeds, to the videos, and you begin to hand over your trust to those companies. In exchange, they give you mild entertainments that might kill you along the way, but at least they're able to monetize it. And they're able to take over your life, your family's life, your community's life, step by step, until the entire system around us is, is subservient to these profiteering, predatory beasts. That's the world that, that we are allowing to be built around ourselves. And that's why I say, listen, if it smells like Google, throw it in the Hudson River. Get yourself away from it. Get off of these surveillance devices on your wrist. Get off of YouTube. Get off of Google. It's, well, I'll tell you at the end of the show. Oh, there's more, there's more, there's more. I just want to tell you one more. I, I've got, I, can, I think I can do this in two minutes. Apple. I told you I'd say something else about Apple. You know AirDrop? Apple, Apple users out there, you know on your iPhone or your Mac, you can uh, transfer big files from device to device without uploading it to the internet. You, you don't have to put it uh, in email. It's too big for email. You don't have to put it on some upload website somewhere. You just airdrop it, meaning it goes straight from device to device right there in the room. Kind of a handy uh, innovation when you need to transfer a big file to someone in the room. Well, Apple... Uh, as reported on uh, November 9 in Bloomberg, the, uh, the iPhone operating system, iOS 
1.1.1, released Wednesday, caps the window in which users can receive files from non-contacts at 10 minutes. That means Apple, I, th I think they've released this in China and it's gonna be, this policy is gonna be rolled out worldwide. Apple is saying if you're using AirDrop anonymously, you can only use it for 10 minutes and then we turn it off. For how long, I don't know, the story didn't say. But it looks like Apple's making it very inconvenient if you're anonymous and you're sending files via AirDrop. And they're, and they're minimizing what you can actually do because it only works for 10 minutes. Why would Apple do that in China? Can you think of why Apple would do that in China? I'm almost out of time, so I'll just tell you. Pro-democracy activists are sharing videos and posters and other information in China, person to person, that are critical of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. There are pro-democracy activists who we should be cheering on who are trying to resist the authoritarian surveillance state in China. China doesn't like this, so who do they call? They call Tim Cook at Apple, the CEO of Apple, and they say, Tim, Tim, you gotta turn off AirDrop. These activists are using AirDrop anonymously. Of course, if they didn't use it anonymously, we could track them and we could send them to the concentration camps. We could disappear them, but they're using it anonymously and you gotta help us. Tim says, consider it done right away, sir. And so Apple turns around and says, we are capping AirDrop anonymously at 10 minutes, but we're not gonna say why. Come on, Tim, everybody knows why. If you don't have the support of the Chinese Communist Party, you got nothing. And so when they call and they ask you to help them crush pro-democracy activism, you say, yes, sir, right away, sir. It's outrageous. Designed in California. What a shame designed in California. There are dangers out there, friends. There are lurking dangers that are not getting enough attention. And I would just urge you to be very careful in who you trust. Just be very careful who you are going to assign your trust to. And a spoiler alert, it's not going to be the $2 trillion company that's looking for more people to be predatory on. And it's not the $1 trillion company that rhymes with Scroogle that's looking for more people to exploit, harm, or let die. Don't trust these companies. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Abandon Amazon. Avoid Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. Please stay tuned for Dave Mandel and It's Complicated with another great show on Prague. And we'll go out to Senator Ted Stevens. Have a great week, everybody. It's not something that you just dump something on.
was sent by my staff at 10 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I got it yesterday. Tangled up tubes. Because it got tangled up with all these things that are going on the internet commercially. I, I think it's absolutely essential to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the, the internet. Network tubes. I don't have to have that kind of speed. I don't think anyone here has defined what net, net, net neutrality is. It's not a big truck. It's a series of tubes. And, and here we have this one situation. Ten movies streaming across that, that internet. I, 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 can't, I, I don't think uh, they're, 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 that we are saying that they cannot... It's absolutely essential. And the center, whether you realize that, you're, you're asking for regulation for, for massively invading this world of the Internet. Mr. Chairman? Oh, yes, sir. I'm sorry. I, I thought you were finished. I'm sorry. No, I'm not finished. I, but, but when we take uh, the, uh, and uh, fiber optics really uh, indicate that anyone that wants to use it, the, this system for massive, massive commercial purposes... Those tubes can be filled. Tangled up tubes. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's a series of tubes. Why did we do that? Why? Enormous tubes. That's it. <laughs> Welcome to another installment, ladies and gentlemen, of It's Complicated. My name is Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday evening. I forget what day it is sometimes. Monday evening between the hours of 7 and 8, bringing you, dear listener, an hour of Prague and Prague-related music. Tonight will be no exception. I've got for you... Uh, a couple of a couple of I'm just going to dive right into the first set without any uh, formalities. I have a couple of um, sort of core prog things I'm going to play for you, and then we'll see where we go from there. I'm going to start out with a track from the group Atomic Rooster. Atomic Rooster was a band that, at least early on, featured on drums, Carl Palmer. 
later of Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, of course, Prague, Prague uh, giants, Prague Goliaths. So we're going to hear a track from Atomic Rooster from their first album, featuring, in fact, Cole Palmer on drums. We're going to hear a couple of other early-ish prog things after that, and then uh, we'll see. Stick around. <laughs> 